0: Hi there. Welcome to The Preventable, the podcast giving you a seat at the table with conversations about the intersection of alcohol, drugs, and mental health in everyday lives. Take a seat and join us. Welcome to The Preventable. With me today, I have therapeutic consultant and PreventEd board member, Dr. Russell Hyken. Welcome.
1: Hey, Nicole. Nice to be here.
0: Uh, So you're not actually here, you're actually in Utah right now. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. I have uh, offices in St. Louis and Utah. Um, And the reason I'm not in Utah so much is there's so many treatment centers out here and so many different kinds of therapies. But this is to be in mental health. This is a great place to practice.
0: What the heck is a therapeutic consultant?
1: So it's a big term. And what I do is help families navigate residential treatment programs. So not specific to substance abuse, although that's a big part of what I do, Um, but I will work with as young as 10 years old. I've worked with the younger on occasion that have really complex mental health issues and need residential treatment, all the way up to people older than myself, so seniors um, that have substance abuse and mental health histories and help them find residential treatment programs. And then once they're there, um, I help case manage it. I sometimes do neuropsychological testing and evaluations Uh, I work with the therapist there. And most importantly, when somebody's done with treatment, I help with the home plan because you can't just go to treatment and come home.
0: Nope. Nope. You have to have a a plan. You have to have kind of an exit strategy.
1: Right. So so you mentioned,
0: oh, go ahead. I
1: I, I And I act as a coordinator with that to kind of make sure that the treatment center talks with the local professionals and will even help find professionals and use my resources and things like that. So we have a really 360 circular process.
0: So you mentioned the testing, the yes. neuropsychological testing. Correct. What, what does that mean? Like, if Explain it to me like I'm a lay person. What really does that mean?
1: So whenever you have mental health issues, be it substance abuse, mood disorders, trauma, your brain reacts in a certain way. And by spending time with the client and giving a variety of executive functioning measures, I really start to learn and understand how the client thinks and processes information. And it's a specialty initial. When you go to a treatment center, most clients do, not just mine, but all clients, at some point usually do get referred for an evaluation because um, so many things can impact the way you process information. So if you're an anxious person, you may process things way too quickly on a consistent basis. And the testing will show that. And one of the things the therapist will work with the family to do is to slow you down, to be more mindful. Pay attention to your body when you're getting stressed out and you're starting to amp up and you're getting emotional to sort of be able to pick that out we also all process information differently so some are more visual and some are more verbal and if you're a more visual person then maybe sitting in a therapy session and talking nonstop isn't going to be your best modality maybe we need to figure out ways to incorporate something more in the visual domain whether that's looking at diagrams and charts to talk about or whether that's incorporating art therapy so through all that process we start to look at how you process information. And it's what's really, really nice about it is that um in a world where everything is in the affective domain, our feelings and emotions, um, when we look at doing neuro neuro evals, we're really getting hardcore numbers about how right. you Right. You're
0: looking at like data. Looking like, at this data. isn't a feeling, this might be a feeling attached with some data.
1: Right, exactly. And and I'll see it. So like um like in therapy, if you're interviewing somebody and you're talking about a really complex trauma, they may disassociate in the moment. Whoa. And through testing, we can kind of start to see well, this is the things that trigger them and things like that. So, and the disassociation doesn't mean they're like out to lunch, miles and miles and hours away, but you can kind of see that glaze come over their eyes, and you can kind of see that that trauma reaction is coming through. Um, and so with testing, we try and figure out how to regulate that.
0: So I'm fascinated because I think I first met you when you were a principal for a local high school, which, you know, you're dealing with a lot of different types of teenagers. And then now, I mean, I don't mean to put it bluntly, but you're dealing with some pretty hardcore situations. So how did you evolve from what I would, in my brain, I'm thinking more of like this universal education to really more of like a, I, I need to intervene for these kids that really have had some major stuff going on
1: so the great thing about high school and running a high school or being in a high school is you get to see kids and families where they really are there's nothing artificial so when you come and you sit in a therapy session not that that's artificial but hey we're going to be here from you know 6 to 7 p.m and we're going to talk about it and i'm in control of the session hopefully in a high school (laughs) in a high school it is there's no control zero control, but you get to see real raw emotion. You know, you get to see kids and families at their very, very best. And you see them at their low points as well. And it was so cool. And what really got me fascinated by the field is I would see kids at their low point, I'd see that kid who I know the night before just learned that their parents were getting divorced or had a tragedy. And then the next thing you know, they're starring in the school play or, you know, they would make a great play on the field and you're like, wow, that's so cool and figuring out how do adults support that and so it all and, and, and it all just kind of starts to weave together and you see families going through distress maybe the kids holding the family together so really when you think about running a school i say you know i got a lot of classes behind me i've been to you know, lots of degrees phd educational specialist master's degree but that time in the high school was so crucial in my learning about family systems and how families interact it, it's irreplaceable and was the best training you could ever have i think for what I do.
0: I mean, you do a lot of, um, through different local news outlets and newspapers and things like that. I mean, you're really, one of your niches is really to provide, I'll say like parenting tips or how to be a caregiver that is present and working to, basically prevent your kiddo from having to be at a therapist's office, right? (laughs) But I mean, we know that therapy is not a bad thing, but essentially like you're trying to instill within parents and caregivers, some real, um, assets so that they can be there and support their, their young kids. So is, does that come because you're a parent yourself or because you just see the connection between teens that are going through something and their family system, or is it a little bit of both?
1: I think it's both but I'm a really big believer in systems in general so we're all part of multiple systems obviously our family is our primary system but also your work is another system um, if you have a religious affiliation or organization that's another system so if you think of like a Venn diagram with all the circles kind of overlaying each other so when a parent's having a bad day at work they're gonna bring that into the family system right and if a kids having a bad day at school they're gonna bring it into the family system and so really it's about how to promote communication because we're all gonna have bad days, that, that's a given. But how we deal with those bad days is what separates healthy functioning from unhealthy functioning. You're allowed to blow up at your kids. Your kids are allowed to blow up at you, but how do you repair that? And how do you move forward? And how do you not perpetuate that argument? And so I think that's where it all kind of fits together. And we see the mental health. I mean, if you have parents that have mental health issues then there's a biological piece that's going to pass down but there's also the way they function and with kids that have mental health issues you'll see like the over parent the kid the parent that gets way over involved so again it's all systems crossing into each other so if you're there's an identified patient typically and sometimes that identified person that's being taken for treatment isn't really the patient it may be somebody else in the family and that's fine too but you got to look at the whole system and that's Treatment programs are great at that family therapy and treatment programs is awesome. You know, weekend retreats where the families come and work together. So all those things.
0: So you're saying there's no such thing as a perfect parent.
1: I'm a perfect parent, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Cause I'm a therapist and I know So right. no, there is no perfect parent. I think the best parents are the ones that recognize their mistakes and we can't always recognize them in the moment. Um, but they recognize their fake, and they look to not repair, but talk through those problems. But also there's a balance there. You don't want to always be talking about your problems. Just, you right.
0: Know. So do your kids ever say to you, like, dad, stop being a therapist? Like, do they oh, ever yeah. or or do you really get into that, like, intentionality about realizing like, OK, this is the therapist Russ talking like I need to be dad, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, come on, kids. Let's go to my office and talk through our problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. It, it's funny. I, I can remember one of my kids as was like, you know, what, quit being a therapist and just give me my consequence, you know? Oh. And I'm like, what a, what a great statement. I mean, it's like, I don't want to process it. I know what I did wrong. I know why I did it. So what are you going to do about it? And I'm like, okay,
0: yep, well, slap my hand. I get it. Okay. Yeah. And
1: I, and I, but that was a really cool interaction. And I think, you know, so really, I think as a parent therapist, you know, those moments that I think are therapeutic or are growth promoting are the moments that all parents can have. You know what, when mm-hmm. you know, I remember when my kids were younger and we'd stop by Starbucks on the way to school and we'd go inside and we'd sit down for 10 minutes and have a quick, you know, breakfast beverage and what's going on today? What are you stressed out about? You know, what do yeah. you do well? You know, or how'd you do on that test? It's those natural conversations where you can kind of get in, you know, those things. And I always tell parents, um, you know what, even if your kid's door is closed, it doesn't mean don't come in, just knock and go in like right. the, you got to initiate the conversation. Kids don't often initiate, but if you do, they'll talk.
0: I I love that because so often people think, you know, and we used to hear that you needed to have, a, you know, dinner every night and you needed to have conversation every night. Well, that doesn't work for some families. So it could be 10 minutes at Starbucks. It could be, you know, maybe breakfast is your meal during the day, or maybe it's in the car or to and from soccer practice. I know at my house, we do highs and lows. Because right. I know if you ask a kid, how was your day at school? They'll say, fine. And that's yeah. how some days I want to respond to. How was your day yeah. at work? Well, fine. But yeah. if we, you can do a high and a low, and we also yeah. have, you you can't have more than one low. like Because <laughs> right. otherwise, it's just like a complaining session, you know? Yeah. But um, I think those like tangible sort of parenting tips or hacks, everybody wants to hack something, those I think are just super helpful for adults who are really trying to Figure out this parenting thing because in the midst it feels so hard. Right, it feels so hard.
1: And, and I like how you said there's a high and a low. You know, it's like what you know. What's your goal for today? You know, what were you good at right. today? Right. Um, right. You know those type of things. And there's so many different ways and different sort of metaphors that you can use. You know, it's like what was your rose? What was your thorn? What was your yep. high? What was your low? You know, Google those. But it's funny because we do do those with our kids sometimes. Yeah. And it's comical.
0: Right. right. It at least least facilitates a conversation, even if you're just laughing at each other. All right. So speaking of that, I can imagine that when a teenager, by the time a teenager at this point in your career comes to you, there's been a lot going on. right? Right. And so I can imagine, well, actually I can't imagine, but I, I would stand to believe that a parent whose child is now interacting with you feels like they have failed feels like this is the worst it's going to get they're at their wits end they don't know what to do because they've tried everything how do you support those parents who feel like failures
1: that's a great question so if the parent is feeling like a failure and they're at their wits end Let's flip that, how's the kid feeling? They may not admit it, but they're just as frustrated as the parent. It's just harder for them to articulate it because it's embarrassing, they're not willing to talk about it. My comment generally is this, you're not a failure as a parent because you're here. It, it, it's, if you continue to let things go and they continue to get worse and you haven't done anything, that's the failure. Now I will also say that sometimes things are so complex that you can do everything imaginable and you're still seeing the behaviors that are very, very troubling. And those are the families that my heart goes out to because they are doing everything and know that there's a biological piece to it, or right. there's something else going on. Um, so the failure is doing nothing, doing something that that's what a parent's supposed to do. And you hope that as you go through treatment and therapy and we get down and going to treatments, not a 30 day deal, you know, it, it's one to two years of really hard work. You hope at the end of that, you can look back and go, wow, look where we are now, you know, that's Right. that's the goal. You know, we've and really that's really where those tests come. Direction.
0: Yeah. And that's where those tests would, I think, be really helpful, especially for that family that feels like they've done everything, but maybe they haven't really considered that there's something biological going on. And I would imagine that that would be a relief Correct. almost to say, Oh, like there's, there's it, something it can- here that we didn't know was here.
1: Right, And when I sit in those treatment meetings at the at the treatment centers where you got the whole clinical team together, and you got the family in the same room or on screens or however it is, and they're really talking about identifying the issues, so it validates the parents because when somebody is in treatment, you see those same behaviors that you see at home. Mm-hmm. you know so that validates for the parent like, "Wow, my child is doing this in multiple environments, or it could be my husband or wife, let's not discount that it is you know, it's sometimes adults. Um, right. and then if they do get a diagnosis or they do get a clarity it does it, it gives you something to grab onto and it gives you targeted treatment opportunities no matter what it is so if you have substance abuse issues then you know you're looking at some type of cognitive behavioral combined with you know a 12-step program for example you know if you have trauma you're looking at emdr or brain spotting along with insight oriented therapy so it's really kind of targeting the therapies to the issue and really clarifying those and then setting little tangible goals along the way to show progress. Cause you know, it is true. You go forward and then you go backward and then you go further forward. It's just, it's what is and inside oriented therapy?
0: What is that? Inside That's oriented what you consider. therapy? <laughs> you it sounds to like sit that would be inside out. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so, Got it. Got it. Yeah. So I yeah. know that not yeah, all of your clients are, um, have have challenges with substance use but i know that there is maybe some overlap and maybe that's not why they're there but you might uncover that in your conversations um this does not mean to i this is not meaning to put you on the spot but is there amongst the teenagers that you're working with is there like a drug of choice that you're seeing that is more present in the the teenagers you're working with is it Or, or, you know, people always ask us like, what's the worst drug? And it's like, you can't say that because it really, I mean, it's dependent on so many things, but we know who we see. I mean, that the teenagers we see are really dealing with cannabis and they're really dealing with alcohol. Is that the same in your world?
1: I think that that is very much the same in our world. The interesting thing about cannabis is that with the legalization of cannabis, and this is not meant to be a political statement either side is what we're seeing is more substance induced cannabis use because what happens is is kids that really haven't you you get to college and you've smoked a little bit of weed here and there Um, but you get to college and all of a sudden you have access to this really potent cannabis and people smoking it whether it's waxing which is super concentrated um, or whether it's, it's gummies or edibles and they're doing it so much that it starts to create paranoia and you're starting to see this sort of induced psychosis and so as part of that is reactionary they they, they use more cannabis instead of right. like saying i need to take a break from it so i used to see um you know uh, cannabis induced or thc induced psychosis a couple times a year if we go back 10 years ago a couple times a month now i mean i'm seeing it so much uh, more frequently and i am seeing a pretty big rise in benzos i mean i think that's you know um the, the pharmaceuticals have definitely i've seen especially with the college kids seeing more and more of that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, but, but I think that's been pretty consistent through my whole career is that, you know, cannabis and maybe a little more pills, um, less heroin than I used to see, um, which is interesting as I think about that, but I just could be in a phase right now the past couple of years where I haven't seen a lot of that, but. How about, more bento. How about
0: mushrooms? Cause I know we've talked at some um, committee meetings about, you know, the, the rise of, new research that suggests that, you know, psilocybin could be helpful. I mean, do you have teenagers that are like reading these articles and trying to experiment or not at this point? I mean, I will say personally, I know more people now that use mushrooms to what I would say Mm -hmm. self-medicate than I have ever before. And I have a feeling it's from some of the research or media coverage of the research and all of its, in, you know, proposed benefits. But it I, seems more to me than I've ever seen before.
1: And seeing more in that in my, you know, older teenage and college age clients that are, you know, and, and it's not just, you know, it's not just mushrooms. It's, they're still doing LSDs. So that all kind of falls yes. into that hallucinogen category, ketamine, you know, all that is sort of hallucinogenics. And I think that the, what you're talking about, the microdosing, uh, has definitely made it more uh, an awareness and more of a rationalization. And yeah. what what the clients aren't understanding is is that they're not doing this under the supervision of a physician. You know, that they're taking too much, that they're thinking that this will help and they're using it improperly. And I don't think the research is there yet on the psilocybin or you know doing those types of, of treatments it, there is good research there um, the two things that come to mind for me are longitudinal data so what's that look like ten years from now and then the durability from one treatment to the next so if I go and I do some microdosing under the care of a psychiatrist or medical professional and I feel great afterwards and maybe I feel great for weeks but when does that trail off and so I want to see some more research on the durability of the treatment before I can you know I, my eyes are open to it. I find it Mm -hmm. really interesting. I've seen some really good research, but I just have those questions knowing what I know working in substance abuse that it, I just, I have some cautions about it at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's infinitely interesting to me. Um, And I think what you said is spot on that the, the research has allowed people to um, Sort of rationalize their use, but it 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 is as you said, typically not under consultation with a with a physician. Uh, so I'm going to end on a positive note here. What the heck? I mean you you do a lot of hard work. What do you do to unwind? To take that sort of therapist hat off or that you know therapeutic consultant hat off? How do you how do you take a break?
1: Well, of course, you know I have the family and the dogs; those are all yes, all very yes. important. Um, you know, uh, one of our favorite things to do, both as a family, but my wife and myself, and by and by myself, uh, is we love to hike. We are out on the, you know, as I am saying, I'm from Utah now, and the plan is tonight is to go do a late night or late evening hike and go oh, dinner. Oh, jealous! Yeah. Jealous. And, and then I'll admit it, even though we're on a podcast and people I know will be listening, I like to watch TV to just turn things off. You know,
0: put on I some get mindless.
1: It television it's kind of take my mind away and uh, but self-care is really important for all of us not just in mental health but everybody out there you need to turn things off from work for a while and just take a break because if not you will be talking to me
0: that's right <laughs> well thank you so much for talking with me I, I appreciate your expertise uh, on the board and I you always have really smart insight, um, not only because of your work with teenagers, but just your work in the field of, of substance use. So thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast. Um, and, uh, if you like more, uh, if you want more of this, you're liking what you're hearing, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the preventable. Thank you, Dr. Heiken. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Preventable, brought to you ad-free by PreventEd. Prevent Ed works to reduce or prevent the harms of alcohol and other drug use through education, intervention, and advocacy. Please visit their website at prevented.org. Like what you heard? Rate, review, and subscribe to stay up to date with what we are serving on The Preventable.